millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. gentlemen boys and girls to a very special episode of Roller Roost podcast uh, I'm your host Raj Burns it's just me today with a, a couple of special guests Jack in here uh, Jack does the odd breakout episode on his own when I'm unable to pull my finger out so this week I'm pulling my weight around the place a little bit more and making up for the fact that I've not done anything like this for a little while uh, but it's a good week, good good time to be alive away from Tottenham. Masters is on, Nationals on. Can't complain apart from the obvious. But um, this is a, a football podcast, a Tottenham Hotspur podcast. So let's concentrate on that, shall we? We've got a uh, a big game this weekend against Manchester United. Traditionally, uh, an interesting encounter. Um, so I've belled up my friend and yours, Carl Anker of the Athletic Fame. Um, one of their Manchester United writers and uh, working on a book with Marcus Rashford, amongst many other things he does. He's got a, his own Manchester United podcast through The Athletic. He, he does his own talking tactics thing on the side. He, he's on Wrighty's house with Ian Wright. Um, so, you know, nobody better place to, to speak about that fixture with. And I'm sure I've not actually done the chat with him yet, so I'm just guessing, but I guess we'll do some... Mourinho chatting things because he's not a man short of an opinion. You'll have heard him on was it Totally Football Show as well. He's uh, he can't he can't throw a stone without hitting Carl in the media these days, which is pleasant to see as his friend. And uh, we're, we're lucky that he's given us uh, a bit of his time. And then after that, I've got another one of my uh, my friends on there, Mr. David Priest, um, goalkeeping expert, probably the best goalkeeping and analyst on the. In the media, on Twitter especially, uh, goalkeeping coach, uh, Wikipedia him, Google him. In the words of Jay-Z, you'll find out his, his credentials. He's um, brilliant what he does. And I wanted to speak to him about Hugo Lloris because he's a, a player that comes under a lot of uh, analysis and criticism and, and divides the fan base somewhat. And a lot of us don't really know what we're talking about when it comes to goalkeeping. I think we're all kind of... Um, pie in the sky and, and and trying to assume what it's like to be a goalkeeper because it's not a position any of us particularly know well about. I think we can we can all, through playing in at some level or even in the playground or down the park, we can kind of assume what it's like to play other positions. But goalkeeper, unless you've done it for a, a large amount of time and trained there and, and actually had that mindset, it's not something you can really identify with. And, and he's best placed to, to give us an idea of of where Hugo's at in his career, what, uh, how good he is, how how 
bad he's become maybe, what the club should do with him this summer. That's all sort of things I'm going to ask him and and discuss the career of, of who I, in my opinion, believe is the the best Tottenham goalkeeper in, in my lifetime, which probably isn't a big shout, but um, is, a, is a big thing when we think about, you know, replacing him and coming past that because that's uh, not a position that's easily done. But uh, we'll get into those two talks now. So first up will be Carl and then it'll be David and then I'll do an outro and say goodbye to you. So uh, hope you enjoy it. Carl, welcome to the podcast, my brother. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. We just had a, a quick little catch up uh, off air. But um, how's life at the minute? I know you're a, you're a busy man with your many um, things that you've got plates you've got spinning, uh, the athletic and the book and everything. How's how's life? Life's good. Life's good. Uh, you enjoy your birthday the other day? I did enjoy my birthday. I did enjoy the day after my birthday because I enjoyed my birthday so much. Um, yeah, I've had a, I've had a decent couple of weeks. Uh, I can, am I allowed to say? Oh yeah, I'll tell you first. Um, by the time you were listening to this, the the book would have gone to the printers. So, oh. uh, I have spent most of this week finalising some other details with Marcus Rashford, and we are exciting, all man. systems go now for a launch, so it can go out on May twenty seventh. Amazing, amazing. That's uh, it's there's no feeling like especially for, for what we do when you go in a shop and see your book there and your name on it and all that sort of shit. It's a, it's a sense of validation that um, you don't often get. It's similar to first time you see yourself in print, because a lot of the work we'll have done is online. When you see yourself in print for the first time, that's nice. In the paper for the first time, that's nice. Front cover, that's nice. But a book is it's a bit special because you, you'll have known the graph that's gone into it. So it's, um, it's a little bit special, that. It's... Yeah, I'm going to have some Madonna and child photographs <laughs> <laughs> when it's all done and out in, uh, in May. Nah, man, I'm proud of you, but let's um, let's chat Tottenham and Manchester United because that's why we're here. You are the Manchester United correspondent, or one of them for The Athletic, um, and uh, you're a Manchester United fan as well. But well, first thing I want to ask you, it's something I've never asked you before. One of the many things we have in common is that our fathers our Tottenham fans. Uh, I followed in my father's footsteps and um, given myself a life of misery. You decided to support Manchester United instead. Um, do you want to talk us through that? Yeah. So a lot of it came from, you know, my, my dad, um, my parents come from Ghana and my dad was a, a black football fan in the 1980s going to Tottenham mm-hmm. Hotspur games, um, which is not the safest place to be as a black football fan. So was, he, was your family based in North London when they came over them? Yeah, so they they grew up. Well, grew up. Uh, they spent some time in Walthamstow. Okay. Uh, in, in in northeast London. Um, so E Because the reason our family are Tottenham fans are for very similar reasons. My granddad on dad's side is from Guyana, so the Caribbean, and he ended up in North London and gravitated towards Tottenham because it was local as well. So his football team, dad's, and then passed on to me. So it's been quite a a natural progression, but in a sort of in an in an immigrant sense. He was there. I also have spoken to like quite a few sort of immigrant Tottenham Hotspur fans, if that's the right way to put it. And yeah. a lot of them often bring up Glenn Hoddle as the reason right. for their fandom. Because, you know, there's a there's a point in time when Glenn Hoddle was the best football player on the planet and was doing 2000-style football and ball control in the 1980s. 
Yeah. Uh, and and I've, yeah, I've, I've been really lucky to have met Glenn Hoddle once. And I just sort of said, do you know you're quite popular in these parts of the world? He goes, oh, yeah, I know I've got a fan club in, 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 in Africa somewhere. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're, you're a big deal. There's, um, it's like Celine Dion and Jamaicans, isn't it? Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> Jamaicans love Celine Dion. Jamaicans do love Celine Dion. Uh, there's a video of Werner Herzog where he is talking about football and he, he starts with him explaining why Glenn Hoddle is amazing. Yeah. And then it goes on to him explaining why Wayne Rooney was so much fun to watch in Euro 2004. So, and that voice as well. Yeah, it's amazing. If you can, you can check out on YouTube just uh, Werner Herzog, Glenn Hoddle, which is really, really good. So that's, that's where my dad supported Spurs. And then he's supporting Spurs during a particularly uh, fraught and, and physical time. So... <laughs> When when I turn up, you know, the first baby, my mum is very much, you, you don't take this boy to Tottenham Hotspur again because it's yeah. too dangerous. Yeah, uh, I wasn't allowed I... to many games when I was a kid. Dad, My dad was a season ticket holder. Um, and this, the war stories you tell me of back then, the lane in the 90s and stuff, I just, I was very lucky to be taken. And this wasn't a safe fixture either, but I was taken to Leeds away very regularly as a kid, Ooh. which, you, you know, you know, fighting in the streets from Ellen Road to the train station, but because we were local, we knew our way around it and knew how to avoid it and what have you. But it were, um, yeah, I wasn't particularly allowed near Tottenham games as a kid, so I kind of understand where your mother was coming from. Yep. So I'm not going into any Tottenham games, so I'm not having that moment when I go to Whitehall and go, wow, this is my team. My dad is being, you know, vaguely agnostic. To, to my football fandom he's like if he wants to get into football that's great but i'm not gonna tell him he has to like football um so there's a point in time maybe between ages maybe like four and six i'm sort of experimenting with a couple of football teams two of my cousins like arsenal so we yeah, dodged that bullet yeah there were two or three times i'm like arsenal my dad is got no son <laughs> <laughs> uh there's probably a point in time where i thought liverpool was really really cool and my dad was open to the idea because you know for a similar reason john barnes is yeah. a, a, Liverpool, a group of Liverpool fans. What Liverpool are is. the uh, they are the the immigrant team. I think like <laughs> every brown kid and every black kid like are Liverpool fans of a certain age. I think it might just be the generation like slightly above us more than our generation, but it, it's sort of they're the ones I recognise it in the most. Just because I think people came to our country and then they just picked the best team, which fair fuck's that. You've got enough enough yeah. to worry about. You may as well not pick a shit team to support. At least give yourself some glory in there. Yep, so there was that going on. Uh, and then, so I'm hovering around doing all this. And then uh, I sat I sat down with my dad to watch the FA Cup final, 1997, which is the one where Eric Cantona, it, Eric Cantona decides what's a pretty drab game. Mm-hmm. Um, wins it for Manchester United. Uh, and apparently, like, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I'm just like, Dad, can I have a go with this team? Uh, my dad is very much like, yeah, all right, because it's not Arsenal, it's not Chelsea, it's not West Ham. Uh-huh. It's not a big rival, so that's fine. My mum is pretty happy with it because there's no worry about me having to go to a football stadium because the team is all the way up in Manchester. Uh-huh. And this 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 works for a couple of years. And then it gets to about age 11 when I want my first ever Manchester United kit. And then my mum figures out Manchester United have a devil on the badge. <laughs> And it kicks off a little bit. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't, I didn't, uh, I didn't have any Manchester United merchandise until I was seventeen. <laughs> and I, and I, had to buy, I bought my own Manchester United kit. Is and that still then, a, uh, is that still issue with you, mum? Uh, less so now. But I remember when I first bought it was so it was a two thousand seven kit. It was the one two thousand seven oh eight. So it's the, it's the plain red one with the ARG, and it's got like a little white strip at the back. 
Yeah, 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 I remember it. It's not the most glamorous kit, but United won loads of trophies with it, so I think of mm-hmm. it fondly. Um, and I remember, yeah, coming back after I bought it from JD Sports, and my mum was very much, "Why have you bought that? You can't, you can't have that." Mm-hmm. Um, so we came to an agreement. I'm not, I wasn't allowed to wear it in the house, and I was allowed to wear it at Five Aside, but I had to take it off before I got home after Five Aside. <laughs> um, that's brilliant. So that's a potted history of how I came to support Manchester United. That's nice. I think I think it's kind of. The stories of how people come to support their teams are quite nice. I think I'm I'm a bit more traditional in the way I've come about it because it's not that I wasn't given a choice, but Tottenham was such a presence in my childhood that it was there was no other way I think I was gonna go because you you kind of mythologize your father to some extent, and he would just disappear for for days on end on, on the weekend to go drive down to White Hart Lane and then come back. And I remember growing up, I wouldn't check the scores because I wouldn't know how unless I would go on teletext but I could tell what it had gone like by how he closed the door when he got home and if it was <laughs> if, it, if it was a slam or something I was like alright we don't ask dad about the game today but if it was quite gentle and he had a smile on his face I was like oh how'd it go today dad um, so yeah uh, that was sort of why I'm um, how I got my club but I, but I think when the time comes for me to have children I will um, I will be the forceful father in that I've, I've had this uh, <laughs> this hanging <laughs> over my head. You you will have it too, whether they are a son or a daughter. I think um, I'm going to be agnostic. I'll, you I'll you're going to do I'll, what your dad did. I'll be yeah, I'll be vaguely agnostic. So you know, no direct rivals. So no Liverpool, no City. No Liverpool, no City, and no Arsenal because I still consider Arsenal a direct rival because I grew up in London, and Wenger's, Wenger's was my one. But other than that, how about it? Um, yeah, that that will be my approach. He says, I'm, "I've been single for a long time. I don't need." To <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it'll happen someday. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so about the football, should we talk about the last game? Because it was a. It feels like ten years ago, but we we came to Old Trafford and we won six two in six one two. of your. Hang on. Yeah. No, it wasn't. It was six one. My friend. Six one. Six one. 6-1, fucking I'll just give you a game and give you a goal, sorry. Cheers, mate. We could we could have done with that. <laughs> um, yeah, 6-1. Um, it's just with our defence. I don't remember it ever being as good to not concede. Yeah, because you scored the first one and then we just ran you off the park. But yep. that was as you just started to sort of cover the team and everything. Um, so what, what was that experience like as both a, a fan and a Manchester United writer? Uh, so, as you mentioned before, I share athletic reporting duties with a number of members of staff at the Athletic. So, uh, at the start of every month, I sort of have a conversation with Laurie Whitwell, who's my fellow beat reporter. And we sort of, you know, we do we do it a bit like five aside. Like I'll pick this game, and you can pick this game. We do one one you know back and forth until we f- fill up the entire month. Mm-hmm. This is this is you know this is, I think it's October, maybe even September. It's really early on. It's just before it was very early on. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, I'm still, you know, I'm unboxing things and I'm, you know, learning my Wi-Fi codes and learning what day the bins go out because I just moved to Manchester. So Laurie was reporting on this game and, uh, you know, five minutes in, I'm going, this is really, really good. I really hope Oli gets to pat Mourinho's head again because <laughs> not only am I a Manchester United fan, but also I am the Manchester United fan that very much disliked Mourinho's tenure. Mm-hmm. So you know, I go, I go up with the early penalty. I'm like, this is great. This is going to be a fantastic day for me. And then you equalize and then the red card happens and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, and Raj, I know 
we text back and forth when we watch some big football games. There is yep. that point. There is that point in the game where you have nothing else to comment other than just swear words and hand yep. gestures. <laughs> and I'd say around about there's a particular goal where Luke Shaw and Eric Bailly are being pulled apart by an overlapping run. Serge Aurier does before he gets pulled back to to the penalty spot and it goes in. And David De Gea is just trying to give commands to the back four and no one's listening. And I remember just going, what are you doing? <laughs> I was just saying, what are you doing? What are you doing at the TV profusely um, as this happens? And it was, oh, horrific feeling. But uh, only compounded by the fact that at the end of the game, Mourinho made a point to pat Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's head. Of course he did. As, a, as revenge for the first time Oli did it. Mm-hmm. Which is that sort of thing of when Mourinho did it and made he like turned to the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about to say well. he made sure that he, he had the sort of um curb look at the camera as well as like um, make sure you fucking get this. Yep, yep, yep. And there's that thing of uh I think I said something like my football team is bad and my enemies are in power. Um <laughs> not to be too melodramatic yeah. about it. Did but... you hear from your father after that result? Yes. So the really interesting <laughs> thing was I was I was covering I, he he messaged me before the game. And he said, oh, you know, what are you going to write about? I said, I'm not writing about this, but, you know, I think the game's going to happen this way. And he goes, you know what, Carl? He, he goes, I think your boys aren't too far. You, your boys aren't too fast in defense. All we need to do is one simple ball over the top and we'll get a goal. And it was that very fun thing of how I've got access to optostats and XG models and all sorts of comparative charts. Your dad's got all them years of the eye test. Yep. And that's it. <laughs> And sometimes that's all you need. And he, he said it as before the game. He went, yeah, Spurs ball over the top. United aren't going to be quick enough. And there's going to be some goals there. Yeah. And uh, that's what happened next. There is something to be said for um, just the, the conciseness that fathers have with their football analysis. Because I will sit there and even now sort of sit on an opinion and let it ruminate. I'll make sure that... It's it's backed up over a certain period of time. I don't want to knee jerk, but my dad will not not quite in a snap judgment, but he will just he will form an opinion and then he will stick by it. And then when it is comes off to be true, he'll be like, "I told you that like fucking three months ago." And I'm like, "But it doesn't yep. work like that." But for some reason, just that experience of having watched the game and watched it in person for so long and stuff, and you can't really swap that obviously it's not the be all and end all because you've got people like soon s on tv and what have you make a tit of themselves but it's there is i'm kind of looking forward to having that myself not that i'm you know an impending father or anything that you'd get the impression after the way this conversation's gone but um i am looking forward to the point where i can just go oh no i think he's shit two games in (laughs) and then it'd be true so my dad was always good with set pieces yeah he, he'd be able to look at a corner or a free kick and go, this is going in. Mm. And I'd often be like, no, it's not. No, and he's like, no, trust me, watch. Um, at the most, re- well, I'd say the most, re- one really good one we got was when we watched Spain, Portugal in a 2018 World Cup. Uh, that ended 3-3. And before Ronaldo sizes up his free kick, my dad goes, yeah, this is a goal. Well, no, it's not. I went, it can't be. Ronaldo's, you know, and I start weeding off all these stats I know about Ronaldo's free kick record. And how if he keeps doing the knuckleball, it's going to go into the wall. And I went, blah, 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 blah. And we're in a pub in Stratford at the time. He goes, trust me right now, you buy the next two beers if this doesn't go in. I was like, okay. Ball goes in. He's like, there you are. He goes, mm-hmm. I'll, have, I'll have this beer, please. I was like, cheers, Dad. One day. Yeah. I'm a journal- I've got a journalist sense. 
so I can, you know, have a feeling about when a, if a manager is saying someone is a doubt, I yeah. can just about figure out if that player might be fit for the weekend. Mm-hmm. But I still haven't quite mastered watching a freaking go. This is going in. My dad's got, my dad's superpower is negativity. <laughs> so it's either, um, the amount of times I've seen him before, like a penalty and he's, going, he's missing this. I don't know how he reads them. Sometimes I try and do it and I'm getting better as I get older, but he will just watch someone and go, he's missing this. And he calls it, I would say he's got a 90% accuracy with that. Like he will, that's the only words to say, I'll just go, he's missing this. And and, and I deflate as he says it, because I know he's fucking good at picking it. And the other thing he does is he'll um, transfers. Like I'll get excited about a transfer or something and it will always be, he's going to be shit. (laughs) And I I, I don't understand how he does it. Because I'll like, Every, I'm still at that sort of age where I want to be positive about anyone that comes into the club, and especially Spurs, we don't sign that many. But it'll be like, oh, Dad, like we're signing this guy and he's this, and then you'll reel off like the resume and the reasons why it's going to work, and I'll go, nah, I think it's going to be shit. And I think he said it about like <laughs> Polino, I think he said it about like Matt Doherty and stuff. Like the amount of times he's right is so frustrating because, yeah, it's just. He's just bang on, and you're trying to, as like the son, you want to prove to your dad that you're smart enough and you want to prove him wrong. And then he's not even smart enough to rub it in. He'll just kind of give me that look like, why won't you ever learn and just listen to me? So nice, like, oh, fuck's sake. But um, yeah, the after that 6 1, um, mm-hmm. our paths kind of diverged, and the seasons were were in tandem for a little while. We did well up until just about before Christmas, and then we've been largely shit ever since. But you've kind of kicked on. What's what's behind that turn? Because Ollie's had this weird trajectory where even now I don't think many people rate him, but he he can't be doing too bad of a job. I mean, he, he keeps losing fairly big games. You you haven't won anything under him. Um, but you are still in the Europa League. You are still plugging away. What what sort of the, the feeling around you guys? Are you, you kind of happy just to carry on going as you are under him? I think so. I think I think what's interesting is how Ole Gunnar Solskjaer framed that 6-1 defeat and has framed the eventual rise to where they got to in January. Mm-hmm. So after that 6-1 defeat, Massive inquest, loads of conversation about Paul Pogba and whether or not he's he's good or bad for this team. Loads of conversation about the defense and why it doesn't work. There was conversation about whether or not uh, Solskjaer would even remain as Manchester United manager. The, you know, the Mauricio Pochettino question was still there or thereabouts. Um, it was one of those times where you got very much, you know, you have a massive defeat and also going into an international break. And I think they're quite, you know, there were there were some segments of the press and the United fandom that when this international break is a perfect time if you want to remove Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and be serious about doing something you do it now you bring in Poch that didn't come to pass um, and what happened was United had an odd series of games b- between that international break and the next one I remember quite clearly someone mentioned you know there was a rumour that ended up being absolutely baseless and had no root in anything about if he lost to Everton he could have been removed uh united won that game 3-1 quite comfortably uh and Solskjaer remaining in place and what was really interesting is the entire time where united will go in from being not good in october to being top of the table in january Solskjaer always framed it as fitness mm-hmm. and he would always bring up as a point that they were only really 
35 days between the end of the 1920 season and the start of 2021 because they went so far into the Europa League. Yeah. And he said it was just a case of we were way off the pace and it, it, it will take maybe three weeks for United to get up to where they wanted to do. Uh, he mentioned the fact that Paul Pogba had COVID-19 and Paul Pogba was not feeling fit and he would get better. And there are more reasons as to why Manchester United got better. There were definitely points in time where Solskjaer did some quite inventive tactical wrinkles to his game. There was a little yeah. phase in January where he started, you know, he started experimenting with moving Paul Pogba on the left or on the right-hand side. Is um, this coming directly from him or is this the coaching staff? Because there's a lot said about, you know, how involved this backroom are and, and how much influence they have over it. Uh, so Solskjaer is quite similar to late-stage Alex Ferguson, where he, when you talk about managing, he very much manages the squad and sort of works as a, a figurehead uh, and mm-hmm. sort of, a very nice manage, manager of emotional content. His door is always open. And I'm, I'm trying not to say he's a clap your hands gentleman, but I'd say <laughs> if there's anyone out there who's quite similar, he does have similarities with uh, Zidane Zidane. He has some similarities with, say, Carlo Ancelotti in that the training is on the majority done by his coaching staff. So people like Mike Fiedon, people like Kieran McKenna, people like Michael Carrick. So I think the, the majority of training is taken by McKenna and Carrick. And then Fiedon observes and will step in if he thinks something's going wrong. And then if Solskjaer does step in, he very much makes it a case of intensity because he wants this team to play quick. He wants them to play quick goals and whatnot. And then when they want to do certain wrinkles to the game, I think that comes from Solskjaer himself. Certain things of, you know, Pogba's going to play on the left. So that means Mason Greenwood, I want you to stay wider on the right-hand side and away for the ball because Pogba can hit you. Those little wrinkles can come in from Solskjaer as well. Um, and yeah, I think, it, I think, Solskjaer has been a clever manager in a very unconventional season. I think there were some teams that went into this season that thought we're going to play COVID, we're going to play COVID Premier League football in the same way we played last season. Whereas Solskjaer went, you know what? With such limited time in between games and the fact that not everyone can run as much, we we can afford to be uh, tactically fluid or tactics light compared to other teams. I think it's been quite interesting to see Jurgen Klopp say. I think after the Burnley defeat, Jurgen Klopp mentioned about how some, he probably got it wrong with giving instructions to his players. And you could understand that why they'd be physically tired, but he didn't quite understand they'd be mentally tired and therefore forget to run for crosses. Mm. Whereas I think you don't have that problem with Manchester United because one, there isn't sort of the set playbook style of when this when the ball comes here, you have to run here and do that. Uh, two, Bruno Fernandes is going to put that ball in anyway because he's such an intense human being. Uh, and three, I think Solskjaer's just been like, quite adaptable throughout the time. Um, and therefore, I think he's done quite well this season. You know, to get Manchester United to, to second in the league, they'll probably finish the league in second. Um, there has been some bad points this season. You know, they lost to Sheffield United at home. Uh, they absolutely snatched defeat from the jewels of victory in their Champions League group stage. Um, there they got was, beaten 6-1 at home. They got beaten 6-1 at home to Tottenham Hotspur. There was definitely, you know, the gap between them and Manchester City is probably too large. Mm-hmm. And there are some very, very interesting, very big questions as to whether or not is Solskjaer improving the team or is he just capitalised on what's been a very disruptive season? You know, you only yeah. have to look at, you know, I, Liverpool aren't going to go away. Chelsea look frightening on the two shore already. Um, Arsenal... They did are, until West Brom under their asses yep. to them. You know, Arsenal are always going to be there. Tottenham Hotspur are always going to be there. Uh, Leicester City aren't going away anytime soon. 
six or maybe seven into four cannot go. And we know for a fact that City are going to be one of those top four. Are United putting in enough process to make sure they're one of the top four? And Mm -hmm. I still can't quite answer that. United are probably, they've got enough talent in that squad that if everyone is fit, and, and if everyone in the Premier League is fit, and if everyone in the Premier League is playing to the best of the ability, I think Manchester United are probably the third best team in the country. Um, and I think if everyone's fit and everything goes wrong for Manchester United, they're probably the eighth best team in the country. You know, uh, and I think they're that, they're that weird team where they're they're probably well they're probably too good for the Europa League and could probably get to the quarterfinals or semifinals or the Europa League week in week out, yep. season on season. But I don't know. I can't see them reach a Champions League quarterfinal. You know, or yeah. I can't see them. I can't see him get to a quarterfinal and go, this is a genuine team that can win the Champions League. So um, it's not quite treading water, but they are in a quite Weird pleasant... holding pattern. Yeah. It, it's sometimes pleasant and it's sometimes difficult because you can't quite yeah. put, a, put a cap on how good this team is. Mm. What do you think when you look at Manchester United? It's weird for an outsider because especially for people our age, I was, I was born and... Sir Alex Ferguson was already in charge and we missed the shit years uh, mm-hmm. where he could have left. So you you were such an institution and such a, an other um, that it almost felt um, silly to compare yourself to them or to, you know, to even think you belong in the same stratosphere. But it's there's a vulnerability to Manchester United that sort of exists now that I, I never saw there being even like clubs like Real Madrid and uh, Bayern Munich and stuff, sort of the similarly statured clubs within their divisions. Even when they have poorer seasons, they still have that air of invincibility about them. Whereas I think Manchester United have managed to completely lose that now to the point where there is no fear going into the one of those games, even as bad as Tottenham are now. I'm not scared of playing Man United this weekend. <laughs> I you could beat us and, and you may well do that, but I, I still give us a a fair crack at doing you over as well. I, and I, I, I can't quite put my finger on why that is. I think perhaps the the running of the club at higher levels is so different to how it used to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of those people that that does believe that um, you know your ownership, obvious ownership issues aside. The, the Woodward appointment and his tenure is is likely to age even worse than than what it is in in real time because I, as soon as somebody competent is put in that position uh, and, and is able to take advantage of all of the resource and attraction and stature that that, that club holds then you automatically sort of start to hold yourself differently. And, and to me, Man United don't hold themselves in the way that the biggest club in the country should. Um, and, and that's really strange to me. It seems to have leaked down to the, the squad even, because the squad used to be arrogant before in a way that they'd more than fucking deserved, but they seem to have lost that now. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're just another good team. And I, I never I never thought Manchester United in my life would be an also run, but that's that's what you are. There, are, there is a, a an argument now to say that even as bad as we've been this season, Tottenham are in and have the opportunity to be equally as good, or our future 
is in a in a position to be even better than Manchester United, which is is ludicrous on the face of things. We'll never be as big of a club, but on on field success, off field opportunities and things, we we're closing gap in a way that you know I never would experience. And we've talked a lot about our families. The, the, the thing for me that sort of brings us home more than any other is I've got two cousins from from East London who. Like my brothers, when we were younger, we used to see each other all the time, six weeks holidays, any um, any half terms or anything, we'd spend all our times together. There's there's pictures of us in naked in baths together all our lives. And, <laughs> you know, they're, they're that type of close family that, you know, their mother is like my mum's sister and, and what have you. And one of them's a Manchester United fan for very similar reasons that you are. And one of them's an Arsenal fan because that was a club close by to them in, in Barking and luckily neither of them decided to support Dagenham or West Ham. <laughs> um, and growing up, I used to be the butt of every joke because 90s Tottenham, even early 2000s Tottenham, just a world away from either one of those clubs. You 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 two were great domestic rivals, winning all the titles, playing in Europe, all that business. And we, we never got a result against either one of you, like never. Um, and in the past few years, we've been regularly finishing above both clubs we've been mm-hmm. outperforming your head to head and stuff and it's i think it's it's strange to ask a tottenham fan that question because i think our perception of of our club is changing so much especially in the past few years and and that's both for good and bad and I'm, we'll come on to that um but our perception of who we are and where we stand is changing to such a degree that it's changing our perception of what other clubs are as well because you know that inferiority complex that we we previously may have had is is slowly being shrugged off, and um, that means that we 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 don't look at clubs like Manchester United with the the reverence that we 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 may well have done previously. It's just it's it's, it's a different um, prospect. It's like it's like that that you know when you see the popular kid from high school and you go to Morrison's and they're bagging up your shopping for them, you, you kind of go. <laughs> You were fucking it when we were 12, but now I'm 28. You're asking me if I want fries with my dinner. Like it's the world changes. So it's, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with it. If that, if that makes sense. No, no, it makes sense. It's the, um, I'd say, I always, you know, I've always said that David Moyes season with Manchester United was my great sort of footballing puberty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it was the moment where I realized football isn't, it's not just, a guarantee that I'm going to get silverware at the end of the season. Yeah. You know? I, there was a point, I remember there was a point in my life where I was disappointed that Manchester United only won a league cup at the end of the season. And then the David Moyes season went, no, this is, this is what football is really about. This is about embarrassment and pain and ridiculous, hilarious things happening to other people. Now you are at the same level as everyone else in the Premier League and jokes have to run, you know? Um, uh, so it's been it's been quite edifying and, and interesting to me to learn you know to to go into seasons not knowing my team's going to finish to go into seasons not having things sorted out until the final day of the season and not in not in terms of are we going to win silverware or not so some seasons have been interesting there are some times why I'm banging my head against a laptop or a television just going why why won't you be better there are times <laughs> where you know I think I think it is. I am genuinely confused by what Manchester United do in a lot of things. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't. A football team of this much resources, of this much money, of this much global 
recognition should mm-hmm. not be run in the way that Manchester United is run, right? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's me being an indolent young man, but like, no, you should be doing this smarter. I have to push my glasses up. Or if mm-hmm. that's me because there are genuinely things I think you should fix. But I will say under Solskjaer, <laughs> I'm not angry about it anymore. I am just, if Manchester United are, a, you know, a smart, casual football team. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call them a serious football team. They're hmm. smart casual. They're business casual. Um, I would like them to get serious because I would like my football team to win a Premier League or a Champions League again. But yep. if they are going to be in a in a unserious holding pattern, they could it could be a lot worse than what Oli Sagana Solskjaer has. You know, I'd much rather continue having Oli Solskjaer than having the previous manager, which is now your manager, because he's not toxic, and your manager is. Sorry, should we mate. discuss? Should we <laughs> should we discuss this then? Because it's yeah. um, it's interesting. It's sort of um, he's been a lot different at Spurs. I'll give you the, the sort of my perspective of, of the Mourinho career arc at Spurs because it's um, it's an odd one. Um, so he, he comes in when we've got rid of Pochettino, and that's that's a hiding to nothing anyway because Pochettino is going to hold a special place in the hearts of of most Tottenham fans until he returns, and, and I'm romantic enough to hold on to the notion that one day he, he will come back. And I, I, <laughs> I kind of think that everything that him and, and Jesus Perez have said as well, since they've, um, since they've left kind of suggests they will as well. He's still in regular contact with Daniel Levy and um, they seem to just come to, come to a, a point where they recognize that Poch can take us as far as he can take us where the club is right now. And mm-hmm. he couldn't continue overachieving to the extent he was because we, we as a club could not keep up with that. And the bet that Daniel Levy made was that the squad still had talent enough in it to win now. And Pochettino didn't believe that. So he made the bet of the squad over the manager because it was the, it was the easier bet and the cheaper bet and the easier one to sort out. And he, Pochettino's job essentially made us into a club that had the stature that could attract Jose Mourinho because previously we wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have given us a second look and and Mm -hmm. his stock even post-Manchester United hadn't fallen enough that he would go to a club beneath him. And and, um, we kind of met each other at a point where he had something to prove and we were kind of his last hurrah at a certain level and um, we needed to start winning. We needed a winner. His, His entire thing is... He doesn't just talk the talk; he walks the walk. And even at Man United, he he, he won you, you know, trophies. There's there's no denying his, you know, his record there. It, it's a a bullshit treble he won, but it was still three trophies and and whatever else. So and that's that's more than we've won in what thirteen years now. Or, yeah, thirteen years now, I think. So the the thinking behind that hire made sense. It, it was one of those where. We had to keep the squad engaged, getting rid of Pochettino and bringing in, you know, other than Guardiola, probably still even more than Guardiola, the the bloke who turns up in Netflix documentaries, has his watch deals, has his Adidas deal. Like he's he's as box office as you get in management, which is ridiculous to say because it's a it's a player run market, but this man is marketed and um, and mm-hmm. celebrated in in a way that is, uh, you know, similar. And he's got his Stan accounts and everything, and and there was that kind of Weird thing for the Spurs fans, we we kind of had to wrestle with the fact that, you know, he's a Chelsea legend and all that shit, uh, which was kind of largely um, came and went fairly quickly. I think he managed that really well in one of his first 
press conferences where, you know, he said, oh, you 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 said you'd never man- managed Tottenham, what changed? And he went, well, Chelsea sacked me. And that, that kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was a, one of those lines that he still got up his sleeve. Um and but and and then yeah, his first season we kind of had to write off because we'd been poor for maybe a calendar year, if not eighteen months in the league. Yeah. Other than that Champions League run that kind of uh, plastered over all that, we we had largely been poor. Um, and the results didn't really pick up. Uh, COVID happened, which is a as big a disruption as will ever happen. And we did okay after the COVID break. We picked up a few results and the summer went well. Um, and then sort of when we kind of went, okay, he's got a clean slate. It's his first full season at the club, really. Uh, he's signed a few plays. He's doing this, he's doing that. The season started exceptionally well. Uh, Kane and Son were amazing. Tangy was in the team doing madness. The defence was brilliant. We weren't particularly playing Tottenham football, but we were scoring... Plenty of goals on the break. We looked yep. defensively fairly solid. Hugo Lloris looked engaged and brilliant in a way that he hadn't done for a little while. And we we all kind of got caught up in the Mourinho narrative and mythology at that point. And we were all kind of like, oh shit, maybe this, whatever the fuck he does, whatever, whatever he talks about, whatever he's mythologizing behind the scenes to these lads, they seem to be buying into it. And we seem to have a sense of, belief and ruggedness about us that we hadn't had previously. And that was underlined by the fact that we turned up at Old Trafford and <laughs> did you buy six? Um, and then then the West Ham game happened. Yes. Uh, and that seemed to really change things. And I talked to, this, I talked to Jack about this in the last podcast because it's, it's something that has, has, has only seemed to creep into my mind over the, the past few weeks. But the thing that Mourinho seems to be now that he didn't appear to be in any other jobs is he he seems to have he doesn't seem to trust himself as much as he used to because we are an outwardly attacking team that is where our strengths lie and when we yep. play that way we have been brilliant even under him it naturally takes a pressure off our defense because the other team has to react and and come forward less as a result and we have looked better every time this season we have played in that manner but because he has this lack of trust in himself or the team or however it is, we keep reverting to this wanna break defense first, not quite parking the bus, but you know, in that sort of arena. And it shoots us in the foot every time. We yep. you know even in that last two all game we we had, um You could see it coming a mile off, right? That Newcastle not, game. Not just that, but the second we went on the front foot, Newcastle wilted. Yep. And we didn't keep stepping on the neck. We went 2-1 ahead and then we went, okay, we'll let you back into the game. And that's happened time and time again. And to be fair to him, his toxicness, as you referenced, hasn't really come to the fore all that often. There's been the odd comment, but really he's, he's as much as Brino does, he's been on his best behavior at Tottenham because I think he has the self-awareness to know that this is kind of his last hurrah at this level. He He's running out of... Um, sort of momentum to get another job at that level or be trusted at that level again. And I'm sure somebody will take a, a crack at him, but, you know, but in England and stuff, he, he cares about his reputation. I think he he was bothered about that in a way that he may not have been previously. He kind of, he showed some humanity in a way he hasn't done before. But 
it's starting to creep in more and more now. We've we've had the Delhi thing that he seems to have sorted. We had the Tangy thing last season, which is he's actually seemed to have managed fairly well. But I don't know if you've picked up on this or not. In the last game, he, he made this strange comment about Toby Alderweireld being dropped because he wasn't available. But he's in the training pictures from the games. He said he's not there. And then the club have been openly now briefing against what Mourinho is saying in his press conferences because it, it simply isn't the truth. So it's we're at this weird place now where it's going to get toxic and I I think around January I I did a tweet that essentially said look we we know what Mourinho's tenure goes like we know what the arc is before he's even arrived you kind of you take what you can get while he's there and that is what you take as your as as being a sort of a means to an end but I think the exact words I used was like a lightweight on the night out it's fun while it lasts but you know it's (laughs) going to end up messy like he's going to end up pissing his pants he's going to end up puking himself it's not going to be particularly respectable or memorable or or enjoyable it's um and that's where we we seem to be creeping towards now and it is it's divided the fan base in a way that only really Tim Sherwood has previously um and it's, it is getting quite unenjoyable now just because it's not the fact that I actively dislike my club in the way I did when Tim Sherwood was in charge because I found him a complete and utter embarrassment. There's just a, a malaise and a lack of engagement and a disengagement almost actively where I just don't care as much as I used to be. Even like the Newcastle game, I think I was I was mad for as long as it took me to write two tweets and then I kind of forgot about it because I... Not only could I see it coming, I'd already processed the result before it had happened. Yeah. It's, um, I will say, I, I've, I've spoken about this to friends. I've, I've spoken to this with um, Paul and Solid, who, who does his own Man United podcast. Um, yeah. No question about that. What is interesting as a United fan is watching how it is happening pretty much beat for beat for beat again. Right. Right. And, and you say you think Mourinho is on his best behavior and things have changed. I'd say it's not. It's the same rhythms. It's the same part time of the year. It's the same sort of, so that sort of thing of you're flying high, you're scoring loads of goals. Then you have a game where it doesn't go well and he applies the handbrake because he doesn't trust himself. That happens to Manchester United, right? Okay. United, were, United were flying at the start of the 17, 18 season, scoring, we put what, first couple of games, 4-0, 4-0, 4 something. Lukaku's doing really well. Pogba's doing really well. Gets to a Liverpool game and... Mourinho puts the handbrake on, doesn't trust himself. The game they call Red Monday ends no nil, and it's awful. And it's just never the same after that. And there was a point in time when I was watching this Tottenham Hotspur project from the outside looking, and I went, oh, this is, I might, I might have been wrong here. And there were some Mourinho <laughs> fans saying, remember when you said it was finished? Uh, you know what? This might work. I said, you know, the, the, the Tottenham Hotspur squad is older uh, and they have some good shooters in, the, in Harry Kane and Son. And if you're Mourinho and you only really let your team have three or four shots on goal, you may as well have two of the best shooters in Europe do it. So that looked good. It was quite, I found it very, very funny that you went top the moment crowds were allowed in. I thought yeah. it was that, that was like Superman being powered up by the sun, you know? If there's, any, if there's any manager in the league who's going to enjoy crowds being back, it's Mourinho, who, I say what you will, everything about Jose Mourinho is designed to get the optimum reaction from crowds of people. That man mm-hmm. knows public performance. Um, one of my editors at The Athletic, Sarah Shepard, said what's really interesting is he even speaks in the perfect cadence for transcribing. Like, you don't have to pause 
and rewind when you're t- transcribing Mourinho notes because he knows how quickly he has to speak to journalists because mm-hmm. journalists can just type up in the flow. Like he he's meticulous in his detail of appealing to audiences, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because his football is not. <laughs> right and that that's yeah. like that's why that's why Mourinho is still enraptures and has us interested even when he's not doing anything particularly new or interesting it it's the very there's always a gap of separation between what Mourinho is saying and what he's doing yeah and we can go on in circles about whether it'll change this time or we can go on about whether or not he's self-aware but that is that is that's inherently why we watch. That's why he got the doc. You know, that's why but all the, or nothing. The frustration is why yeah everything's interesting. It's because and I I you know I'm I make no hidings of how much I disliked him in charge of mm-hmm. Manchester United and how much I disliked what he was doing to some of my favorite football players on the planet. Yeah. And when Mourinho loses, I tend to tweet in a very unprofessional manner. <laughs> um, but I will say, part of me does want. Mourinho teams to do well, right? Because that's interesting. He is an interesting main character in football. Yeah. Even if his football isn't. And I I like you desperately want his football to be interesting because you want a world where there is no Mourinho, where there is no if I speak, I'll be in big trouble. When there is no um antics and and miscreant nature is a mm-hmm. bit poorer. So I, I oh, want this I want this Tottenham Hotspur experiment to go well. I want them to win the League Cup because I want the press conference for when he wins the League Cup. Right? I want I want to see him like a pig in whatever after he's yeah. defeated Pep Guardiola in a League Cup well, final. Like, we, here's a medal. We've, we've beaten Man we've beaten Man United, we've beaten um Chelsea in the League Cup, we've beaten Man City a couple of times under him, we've beaten Arsenal a couple of times under him. We were awful in the last derby under him away. But there, there are these moments where his methods actually work and we do do decent stuff. And that's where you kind of, you almost doubt yourself as a fan because he comes with all this baggage and there, he comes with all this, everyone else is so interested in him in a way that, as, like I say, as a, as a growing club, we're not really used to as much. We, we've never really been that sideshow or that, you know, under that much attention as as we have been when he's been there, just because he he demands it himself from what he's done before and his stature within the game, you know, other fans such as Man United fan bases and stuff like that, like having their own opinion on the on on your manager, it's strange because you just you get trapped between this thing of going, am I actually having an opinion because it's my opinion, or am I getting mm-hmm. swept yes. up in public opinion? And it's really hard to actually because you you want to treat your own club differently, you want to treat them on their merits, want them to do well if they're going to do well. You don't want to do the Mourinho thing of pulling a handbrake before you actually do it because are we only a few players off? Because here's the other thing of it is we watch Tottenham enough to know that our problem isn't Mourinho alone. We sack him and bring in someone else tomorrow. We don't automatically become good because we have been shit now for (laughs) two, three years and that long predates him. And fair enough, we've bought a few more players. We've we've tried to change the squad a little bit, but we haven't gone far enough. And not only that, but we we haven't built the infrastructure around that. We haven't got the director of football we need. We ha- we haven't got the 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 things in place for the football club to operate at the level it needs to now be operating at. Because this is a point we made in in the last podcast we did. So apologise to people who are listening for for repeating it, but for the sake of Carl. There was a charm to Tottenham punching up and 
being the best of the rest and what have you, while we were at White Hart Lane, while we had a squad that was only one or two great players, or while it was Gareth Bale who was, you know, on the precipice of, of becoming a European great at Real Madrid and what have you, there's a, there's a charm to that in a similar way, as much as that uh, pains me to say, there is, a, for example, this West Ham season. Mm-hmm. When we're in the best stadium in the league, when we have NFL deals, when we have documentaries, when we have Jose Mourinho, when we have the England captain as our fucking talisman, there is no charm to being shit and being an also run anymore. You've got to at some point, you, we, we now are talking the talk of being a super club. We've got yeah. to actually go out and be a fucking super club now because we've made those bets and we've made that decision and we've made those packs with the devil to be that club, but we're not doing it with that, that last 10% there is to be that we've not done. And that isn't on Mourinho. That isn't his fault. And that, that is in the back of my mind. The other thing with this season is you made the point about Man United's fitness. We played 50 odd fucking games this year. We, we had less than the rest of everyone else because we were going to here, there and everywhere in the early games of the Europa League. And we've got more minutes in our legs than pretty much anyone else did. We've, we've got into the latter stage of the FA Cup before losing in an extra time game. We got fairly into the, the knockouts of the Europa League um, and lost there. It's just, we have played a lot of football this season. We're in the final of the, the Carling Cup. So there's there's so many different things that you can almost talk yourself out of it being a Mourinho-only issue that you kind of, I'm kind of sat here and go, oh, we can sack him and maybe we do feel better about it, but that doesn't solve our problem straight away. And just like sacking... Here's the fun thing, right? You sound exactly like me <laughs> in Mourinho's third season, right? You can you you can take out... You can change all the, the Spurs relevant stuff, but that is exactly what Manchester United fans said after the World Cup, right? In yep. terms of, oh, we've got bigger problems. We don't have a director of football. Oh, we've been talking the talk about how we're going to be really big and get in the Champions League, but we're not doing it in terms of players. And this, this is exactly... This is... I'm really sorry, Raj. This is what Mourinho does, right? He gets, well, I don't know if if it's deliberate intentional. They're in the gap between him being an entertaining manager and his yep. football not being entertaining is this weird cognitive dissonance. And it like breeds cognitive dissonance in the football fan as well, <laughs> right? So United fans sounded exactly like this in that second and third season of, the problems are deeper than Mourinho, so you can't just blame Mourinho. The squad needs weaknesses, or you need the director of football. I, there was a point in time where every single time I was on Totally Football Show, I'd say, "Where is the director of football?" Because yep. if Manchester, United, you know, I'm, I'm off a point, you know, if Manchester United want to be serious about winning Premier League again, I want to be serious about winning Champions League. They need to do modern things. You can't, you can't talk about this is Manchester United if you don't put any work into upholding what Manchester United is about. That is exactly what you just said. Right there, right? The only real difference is you also brought up a stadium and NFL stuff. And then when I'm talking about you got to look after Marcus Rashford and Paul Pogba, you're talking about protecting Harry Kane and Son. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is the more thing, time is a spiral, my friend. <laughs> Things, it's not a flat circle. I, it's, it's very much the same thing with different actors. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think the, the really difficult thing is. I understand exactly what you're saying. And yeah, if you've got a brand new manager right now, you wouldn't immediately be amazing overnight. However, as a, man, mm-hmm. as a Manchester United fan who has like gone to the post-Mourinho phase, I will say, don't let that stop you from getting rid of Mourinho now. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, 
there are some sometimes I'm watching Paul Pogba on the social and things are getting better and I'm going I can't believe we wasted three years of this man's career mm. under a manager they hate him and well we've got the same thing with Delhi now you will you will get that right imagine so, like what do you think Delhi thinks when he looks at Jesse Lingard right now yeah well I'm he probably can fucking relate yeah right Delhi's looking at Jesse Lingard balling out on loan at West Ham going fuck man I wish I got my loan deal mm-hmm. um and you, you, you will probably get that. You will probably have a moment in 2022 or 2024 when you have Nanglesman or Marco Rose or maybe you bring in Lucien Favre or you bring in someone. Allegri. Um, Allegri or someone. And you, and you might have a moment where Oliver Skip is playing good football, right? And then you, and Oliver Skip has, let's say Oliver Skip drops a 9 out of 10 game against Leicester City, who by mm-hmm. this point in time have turned it into a top seven, right? All of us get balls out, and you will have some faction of your fan base being, being Mourinho was right. See, he was amazing. Mourinho gave him his debut; it was fantastic. And some of your fan base would go, "Skip would never be that good on Mourinho," because <laughs> that will happen. You will get that because we have we you know, United have a very similar thing with Lingard. Um, they have very similar things with some of our with some of our Man United players. Which just Mourinho gave them their star, but also, mm, yeah. We're doing the same thing right now with Scott McTominay. When some people say giving the credit to Mourinho, and some people are going, actually, he doesn't get to be this good on Mourinho because Solskjaer's done this with him. So, yeah. good luck it with is that manager. Yeah, <laughs> we, we I, I, no idea what happens. To be honest, it entirely depends on how the season ends. He, he, I think the thing with Mourinho is he makes a rod for his own back with the way he speaks, and if he fails to win the Carlin Cup, the Carabao Cup, whatever the fuck they call it these days, League Cup. And he fails to get us in, back in the the Champions League, then that is him failing his brief, in my opinion, and that should be more than enough for him to go. I, I personally am of the opinion that the uh, the Dinamo Zagreb second leg was a sackable offence on its own. Um, <laughs> to be quite frank, <laughs> see that um, that was basically Seville knocking out Manchester United in the Champions League, and yeah. Mourinho does football heritage. That's when I went, oh, you have to go now. And and, he, and you don't. You go until the end of the season. You probably get a little bit more, and then it gets really, really bad. Is my sort of Manchester United view going? I'm scared. Yeah. Well, I just kind of want to avoid the bit where like everybody shits the bed to the point where it, there's no other option. Like, well, there is some chance of turning this around with some sort of proactiveness, if you can even call it that. Let's do it then, uh, because we are staring in the face. The, the possibility of losing the likes of Larice Kane and Son, and that is uh, beyond reproach as far as I'm concerned, because that sends our club back five years, if not longer. And uh, yeah, w- w- what's the fucking point if that's the case? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before I uh, I start crying too much, um, that's just a couple of couple of sentences because I've kept you long enough um, from your actual work. Um. How do you see the, the game this weekend going? A nil-nil, isn't it, right? Because we, we've we've overhyped a lot of these Manchester United big games this season, and five of them have ended in nil-nil. So I don't want to get my hopes up too much. It's going to be two teams trying to play on the break, isn't it? I think so. Which, if Manchester United play their double pivot of Scott McTominay and Fred, could cause some very interesting chaos. Uh, my head says it's going to be a boring nil-nil. My heart wants a 
Helter Skelter 2-2 draw where Rashford scores, uh, someone gets sent off, and there's a penalty involved. Um, I can see both Rashford and Harry Kane scoring. So, uh, yeah, a high-scoring draw is what I think. I would really love it if Oligan Solskjaer gets to pat Mourinho's head. <laughs> because I just like that. I think that, that was the moment when Solskjaer patted his head. That was the moment when, oh, you're not just a nice genteel substitute teacher there is some proper edge to you mr Solskjaer, um, which probably says a lot more about my own preferences as a football fan than it does about Solskjaer. but there you have it what about you what are you going to say there is literally no expectation from me anymore going into a tottenham match i think we will we will start quite dour uh, mm-hmm. as we do uh, and i think the entire focus of the game is going to be on uh, tangy supplying um harry and sonny um, and leaving them to it and then seeing what we can do around there. We'll have quite a stodgy midfield, Hoybier probably. I hope Sissoko doesn't start. Um, and we'll see what happens. Our fullbacks are, are, are a question. Uh, if if Region can play, that's good. Uh, right back is a mess. Perhaps Jaffet plays again. Um, yeah, our defence is just suspect across the board, really. So... <laughs> That's Again, a, a you sound concept. exactly like a United fan. You um, sound exactly like me in the end of uh, 2018. But your defence is still suspect. Yeah, that's the thing. Although it's it's changed from on the Mourinho, all the defenders look as if they treat the football like a bomb. And now on the Solskjaer, the problem is they don't know whether or not they should set a high line or defend deep. So a different kind of problem. I think what's really interesting is, I mean, the one thing that really threw me off about Mourinho learning his lessons was what happened with Ndombele. Oh, this is the thing. We thought it was going to be the Pogba situation and Tangy would go and be amazing at Barcelona or something. I thought that too. But I will say you fixed that because you did what we never did at Manchester United where we just bought someone to do the defending for him Yep. in Hoiberg. So credit to Levy for for making Mourinho persist with Ndombele and credit to Hoiberg who having watched him all the last season at Southampton, ended up being far better for Tottenham than I thought we'd be. Um, and credit to Ndombele for doing the good work. But that was the real big, like, oh, maybe he did change. But also, he hasn't in some other ways. So. You know, the, the one thing that probably sums this up the best is, I can't remember who did the tweet, but somebody did the tweet, which was essentially, we're in a season where Harry Kane's playing the best football of his life. Ledley King is one of our first-team assistant coaches. Gareth Bale has returned... Son is balling out and Tangy's been amazing and we're still miserable. And uh, <laughs> there's, the, the, you know, there's only a very short list of people who, who could be at fault for that and um, the coach is, is probably high up that. So ah, I'm sure we'll we'll catch up next season and see where we're at. Maybe the guy's still there, maybe he's not. We'll, um, I'm sure we'll find out. For me personally, after the... Uh, after that um, Europa League exit, I was I was quite ready to give it Ladley until the end of the season because uh, that would <laughs> that would make my heart dance with joy. But that's um, that's me being the um, the idiot that, that you know those um, me also me gifts me don't just hire yep. somebody on nostalgia also me give it Ladley till the end of the season. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is what it is. But thank you very much for your time, brother. Um, I'll speak to you soon, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, good luck for the rest of the season. Good luck with, with everything else and the book and, and all your, your many successes and accolades. Oh, thank you very much, my friend. It means a lot. I will say also, Harry Kane. Yeah, Harry Kane's probably the player of the season. 
Oh, without doubt. Make sure you use his PFO vote on that. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Just to save you all listening to that cockerel again, Carl's going now and um, we're going to start the chat with David. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for giving you your time. I'm going to be honest here. This is the second time we've done this. We've had some tech- technical difficulty, uh, but we'll crack on anyway. We're uh, we're two northern men. We're not the best with computers, <laughs> um, but fuck it, we'll we'll uh, we'll crack on. We, we're having a chat, um, just giving some basics to your career and your credentials. You've been a a goalkeeper in England, Scotland, abroad, and and coaching all those places as well. Um, as as your Twitter account as well as a go-to place for uh, analysis. And you were telling me that you kind of fell into that and uh, it was happened by accident. Yeah, I mean, I, sort of after I finished playing or towards the end of my career, I was, you know, I, I was looking to, to go into kind of like journalism, the media, did a media degree. And so that sort of coupled with what I was watching on TV and, um, and, and basically just airing my frustrations at what I was hearing in, in commentary and punditry about goalkeepers. Yeah. You know, that's really how it started. And, you know, it, it just kind of snowballed from there where, it, yeah, I, I kind of made it, <laughs> made it my own business to, you know, every time I was watching games, which is almost every game that's on, like, you know, I just, um, if there's anything that happened, and a lot of the time it was just to, you know, when, when keepers were making mistakes or they're getting blamed for goals, it was kind of just standing up for them and just saying, "Well, actually, it's not as simple as that. This might have happened. This will have happened," and um, and just giving a bit more sort of nuance to to what was happening because if we, we weren't getting it from anywhere really. Yeah, I think I'll say to you, it's it's one of those things, especially from someone like mine perspective who's written about the game and everything. Goalkeeping's that one position unless you've done it consistently or wanted to be a keeper yourself. You don't really have a frame of reference for, so you do fall into a trap of, of talking in, um, in cliches and, and saying he shouldn't be getting beaten at his near post. He, you know, he should he should catch that all that sort of bollocks. And until you came and sort of pulled us up on it, I think people would have carried on doing it a bit more. Um, so it's actually quite nice to have given more insight into the uh, sort of the the techniques behind goalkeeping, the coaching behind it, the thoughts of positioning and, and why certain decisions might have been made. And um, it's it's funny when I, I see your account because you'll you'll stick up for a goalkeeper sometimes and then people will think you're 
you're only giving um, goalkeepers defence, but occasionally you'll, you'll tweet something like, oh, no, that was just shit, or you yeah. should have done better there, because you kind of got to hold your hands up sometimes as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's a good pun, because sometimes people like, goalkeepers don't hold their hands up, and that's why they let goals in, but it's... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's it's not always to defend, and sometimes it, it probably does get like that because you, you get sort of you, you put yourself in the position of of the goalkeeper that's happened to, and some and you you kind of become a little bit defensive. And but like I said, it, it's more about giving a little bit sort of bit of depth to to the subject rather than actually you know trying to sort of absolve them of any blame. You know, and I think a lot of people, yeah. it's quite a few people, especially lately, have sort of sort of lodge that against us and and yeah sometimes i might be guilty of as well i mean somebody like jordan pickford's probably a prime example where you know he's he's a sundan lad and yeah and i was a real big sort of big cheerleader for him and what you there's no doubt that he's been he's had some troubles over the last couple of years you know but sometimes just it, because he's got little arms y- yeah exactly <laughs> 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 no, well there is that as well yeah but it, 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 it's you know, it it just it's something in me that wants to de- defend goalkeepers as well. So it's, but I like to think that I give a more balanced view. You know, it's yeah, of course. I, I think I, I I'm I'm just human like anybody else. You know, I'm I'm prone to, to my biases as well with with goalkeepers, and you know, you obviously have favourites, and you know, unless I'm working for the BBC, I don't really have to give any balance. It's interesting you mentioned favourites because um, one of the keepers you stand up for and and you. You're a fan of the most is Hugo Lloris, like I am. And um, as, as a sort of a fan base, Tottenham have, have, in the past couple of years, had an odd relationship with Lloris because he's he sort of split certain fans and, and people here and there that have jumped on the mistakes he's made, thinks he, it's time for him to perhaps move on, point to the fact that he's he's made one or two more high-profile mistakes, not just for us, but in the World Cup final as well. But to somebody like me, I, I kind of find that slightly disrespectful because it... it, it, it it's almost as if the man's earned some credit. He's he's made some of the greatest saves I've ever seen. He still does. He's more often brilliant than he's not. And it it, it, it kind of feels like Turkey's going for Christmas a little bit because I don't understand where people think we're going to be getting a better goalkeeper from anytime soon either. So to, to speak to you about it, because I, I'm no authority on goalkeepers, like I've said, but to kind of get your insight onto the entire situation and, and especially the succession away from him because his... It's no secret that he's getting a bit older and, and while he, he may have a season or two left in him at the very highest level with us, we've got no plan beyond that and that's something we should probably be thinking about now. So that's something I wanted to, to speak to you about. But but first off, if we, we look at his, his skill set and what he's amazing at, um, his speed off the line, his reflexes and everything, where does that stand for you in the sort of the the modern pantheon of of goalkeeping greats? Well, well, you know what? If you look over the the course of the time that he's been, to, how many years has he been in Spurs now? I think he arrived in two thousand and twelve, two thousand thirteen. Yeah, so a good almost a decade. Nine, this is almost, maybe yeah. ninth season. It, it sounds like so. When you look over that time, when it comes to to shot stopping, consistently in that period he's been in the Premier League. He has been consistently the best. Now it's it's you know there might be some seasons he you know he drops his his level a little bit. He's um you know just looking at sort of uh, stats from Stats Bomb when they do the sort of poor shop expected goals where it kind of judges how many goals 
that uh, a keeper basically saves uh, uh, his team in over a season. Yeah. He's, he's consistently up there. Even if the, the last three years, when you probably say that a lot of fans' perspective will say that his powers are on the wane. When if, you know, if you look at uh, two years ago, two thousand eighteen, nineteen, uh, his poor shot xG is eleven point three goals, which is phenomenal. When you think that Fabianski is around the same, and the next one down is Allison, who is four point eight. Yeah. So he's saving, you know, he's saving Spurs double the amount of goals that that um, that Allison was, and that's it in his first season. And then you look at last season, he's he's number two with plus seven goals, seven point three goals, with only Martin Dubravka above him. And then you look at this season, and I think he he's probably around fourth, yeah, fourth with their 4.5 goals. So when you're looking for a, a goalkeeper and you're looking at their sort of like their, their base um, attributes, you know, one of them is obviously, you know, does he make a difference to your team? Well, if you look at the, over the past nine years and you look at how many goals that statistically it showed that he saved Spurs, then, uh, you have to say that he does make a difference to the team. He does make a positive difference to that team. There's no question about that. Um, what makes him a, a good goalkeeper then? What makes him able to make that amount of saves? Well, I think you said it about him being sort of, being, he's very quick on the line. So like he's uh, he's always a keeper who, who plays deep in his goal. So... Uh, for example, if you look at the average goalkeeper, the average goalkeeper from the average shot from from you know when you look at statistically where when shots are taken from from wherever they are, every shot the um the average distance from uh, from goal that a goal uh, from his line that goalkeepers is around three yards. So you would say that if you look at somebody who's uh, can, can plays a little bit higher, it would be four or five yards. But with the Reese, it's probably a little bit closer to, to two. And all that means it's it, allied with his um, with his speed and, he, and his quick feet. That means that that's the the sort of extra depth he gives himself gives him that extra time to uh, to respond to it, to move to his feet, to react to it, to give him more time to see the ball. Um, and that's a, and like I said, allied with his with his speed, that just makes makes him a phenomenal shot stopper. And but also it, you know, keepers that play deep in the goal like he does, especially in one v one situations, it 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 puts the pressure onto the onto the striker. So of course you know at the very top level you know strikers can take that uh, you know the elite level strikers can take that pressure. But when once you go below that and you start putting pressure on people who uh, under you know who are stressed to you know are having bad runs of form or you know below the the bottom half of the Premier League, if you're if you're deep in your goal, what happens is you, you make them you put all the pressure onto them for them to decide where the ball's going to go, and and then you can just react off. So it might mean they take an extra touch, which means you can come down and close down the space and block it. Um, you know, keepers that are playing much higher, somebody like Edison, who isn't certainly isn't bad at one v ones, but sometimes the higher you play, you know, you leave more space behind you for the players to touch the ball round. Um, if it's a shot 
at you, then obviously the closer you are to the striker, the less uh, response time you have to, to try and stop the block the shot. Again, like I said, you know, the greater distance between the striker and somebody like Lloris, it gives him just that split second extra time to, to respond. So all of those things, you know, just make him a phenomenal shot stopper. I think one of the things that have has detracted away from that is that in the more high-profile games, in, in games where we play in a City or you're United or Arsenal or, or people that at the top end of the league where, you know, that's where the, the season's lost and won, there have been occasions where he's he's not been at his best and he's perhaps thrown one in or been a bit weak-wristed and, and pushed one back into a, a dangerous area. And um, people have, have started to notice that and make a, a real point of it. Um, do you think there's anything, uh, an underlying issue for that? Is it purely confidence? Is it technique? Or what would you sort of attribute that to and, and do you think it's something that, that comes and goes because his form actually was brilliant when Mourinho first came in he, he started to dip a little bit more recently um, but it's not been a, a sustained thing it, it, seemed, it seems to just happen in, in more high profile occasions I mean you know I've not, I've not really looked into it uh, that deeply but I mean if you look at it on the surface when someone like Mourinho comes into a, a football club and then you know, he makes them. You know, the, the, makes the team less expansive, which in 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 turn makes it. Uh, you know, it's kind of simplifies the game of the goalkeeper and defenders as well. Yeah. So that you know, he'd be less re- reliant to uh, on, on his distribution, which I don't think it's it's not as bad as what people think. But of course, when you're looking at the standard now, which is Allison and Edison, you know. Yeah. Is somewhere below that, you know, but if a keeper's distribution isn't up to that standard, then again, like I said, you just simplify it and make sure that, um, that you, you know, you offer options further up the pitch, whether it's clipping balls into into wide fullbacks or wing backs, or or simply just trying to to hit someone further forward on the halfway line, you know. Yeah. Um. But also, there's a there's also a consistency around the way that defence is playing as well. You know, yeah. I think that this season, you know, as, as far back as I remember, sort of up until the start of of Pochettino, um, the, the defence was always uh, was always really strong. They had a great familiarity. You know, of course, they had the fullbacks that would go go really high in attacking, mm-hmm. but def, you know. When you look at Fatongan, um, Aldevirel, people like that, it was solid. This is pro- this season probably the first season where I've noticed that there's been a real weakness. Yeah, we've we've not really had a settled back four, which is probably not going to inspire a great amount of confidence in the keeper, is it? Well, that's it, uh, and you know, consistency in that area, and in in uh, you know, having a consistent sort of at least a consistent pairing or or back three. With a goalkeeper, it just allows those relationships to be built, and and sometimes when, as we've seen with Liverpool as well, where you know there's chopping and changing, even oh, United as well. To be honest, you know there's when there's that you don't have that consistency in the personnel, you know then players don't get used to those having those relationships where they get used to playing with each other and uh, and that familiarity that you know which which brings um, which brings security at the back. 
Yeah. Because what it does, it, it you know, the, the more you play together, the more you know each other's game, the more you can make um, better decisions on what the people in front of you are going to do. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the kind of upheaval in, upheaval in that area and just means that it, it makes it difficult, more difficult to make better decisions. Yeah, I think that's something that people have touched on this season, but they still persisted these rumours and, and suggestions that we're going to try and either replace him or, or bring somebody in to, to bring direct competition. I don't think that's what we did when we brought Joe Hart in, um, who, who's probably a, a really good example of what happens when a, a goalkeeper's career really tails off. And, and that's a probably a, a separate conversation in itself because he went from, from the top to being our number two really quickly in a, in a way that I don't think people really expected. Um, but in the types of people you've seen being mentioned as his, his possible replacement, and Nick Pope's probably the, the highest profile one, as, as well as Dean Henderson, maybe at Man United, that's probably less likely. Does that seem like a, a sensible contingency plan, or would you rather bring in a, a younger keeper to come in in a, in a couple of years after and, and allow Hugo a few more years at, at the very top? Well, uh, really, it needs to be a question for. Um, whoever's in charge of recruitment. I mean, I'm not. Do they still have a director of football at Spurs? We don't. <laughs> no. Well, that's it. So, like, once you have a, you know, for example, if if you knew which direction the team were going in, and it was Jose Mourinho, and that's the type of team that you're building, then somebody like Nick Pope would be the correct person for that. You know, so, you know, you, you're not going. <coughs> Sorry, you're not going to be expansive the way that you play at the back. So you know it's not it's not that important that you have somebody who's got like every club in the golf bag when it comes to distribution. Um, and you're gonna if you're gonna defend the box deep, um, you know get somebody who's suited to that. And, and Nick Pope obviously is used to doing it at Burnley, and he's and his skill set suits them perfectly the same way that some like All Black does at Atletico Madrid. So then, I think that's what needs to be looked at. What kind of team are you trying to build? What's the um, what's the philosophy of the not just the the manager, because obviously the philosophy should be set by the club and the director of football, and then the manager comes in who suits up uh, that that philosophy, and then obviously you recruit accordingly to that. Do you think if we bring in a Nick Pope then, but say Mourinho's gone in the summer or? or the year after gets sacked some point next season, but we've got Nick Pope in, and then we, we hire a manager who wants to play more Tottenham, Pochettino-style football, we've we've dropped a bit of a bollock because we've we've got the wrong type of keeper for the football we might aspire to be playing long-term. I, I think that. You know, it's it just the same way that for, for years, you know, there's different type of strikers that's, that suited um, the style of play of a certain team. Now you've got a f- full spectrum of goalkeepers who... Who 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 do that as well, you know? And um, I mean, it's funny you should mention Dean Henderson because I mean, there, there was a lot of rumours actually, sort of towards the end of last season that, um, you know, after playing at Sheffield United and he was, he was looking to go at the next level, I'm I'm quite sure that he was open to um, to a move to Spurs if he wasn't going to get his chance at at, at United this year. And, and and with Dean Henson, Dean Henson's probably sits in the middle somewhere where he's he's more of a, a, a more rounded goalkeeper. Where you know, um, you know, maybe he's in between a, an Allison and a, an Edison or a, a Nick Pope. He probably sits in the middle of that. And so, 
you know, if you're a club that hasn't got any real um, forward planning to where they want, how they want to play, someone like Dean Henderson, who's like I said, who's a good all-round keeper who can adapt to different styles of play, which he showed with United now and obviously Sheffield United, where he was his distribution was was to go long most of the time. You know, then it's good to have a keeper who can adapt to that. Um, because of the keepers that you mentioned, like Allison and, and Edison and stuff. Do we have we fallen into trap of sort of expecting too much from keepers, expecting them to be good enough to play midfield, but also shot stoppers and commanding their box? We kind of want them to be Swiss Army knives, and it's interesting that you mention that the sort of there's a spectrum of goalkeepers now, in the same way that you can have a, a, a fullback that you'd go, oh, he's amazing defensively, but going forward he's a bit suspect and vice versa. Is it the same concessions that you sort of need to prepare your mind to make with goalkeepers? Because it is a a singular position and, and it's not like a fullback where you can kind of choose between, oh, we'll play Ben Davis this week, but we'll play Reggie on the next week. You kind of, your goalkeeper's going to play 90% of the season unless it's like an early cup game or something. So you can't really flip flop between them unless you're Man United, interestingly. But um, you kind of need to make your decision and stick by it. Yeah, I think it all depends on the character of the goalkeepers because I think we're probably getting to a stage now where, you know, your goalkeepers can be a case of horses for courses. You know, you look at the the top, all top uh, Premier League clubs have goalkeepers as number two who could be number ones elsewhere. So that's why, and you you find that they play a lot, of, they play sort of games at the double figures in a season because they get the League Cup, FA Cup, some Europa League sometimes, and they play a lot of games. Yeah. So, you know, if you... If your recruitment's right, then really you recruit the same type of goalkeeper. But there is a case also to be said for, well, you have two different types of goalkeepers so that if you want to switch the way that you play, like I said, if you're a, um, if you're a mid-table Premier League club and you play against the bottom half, of the, um, bottom half of the Premier League and you have a lot more possession of the ball, then you can play with a keeper who is more adept with the feet. If you play, you know, playing against one of the top half of the um, table clubs and you're going to have to concede a lot of possession to the opposition, then you have a goalkeeper like Nick Pope who's used to dealing with, um, you know, playing with a team that's a deep block and having to deal with lots of crosses and, and shots from around the box, you know, with a, yeah. with a deep defence. But again, you know, like, like I said, there's, there's ups and downs to that as well because... You know, if your first choice gets injured and you like to play football, but your second choice isn't great with his feet, then you have to kind of adjust the way that you play a little bit to to compensate for that. So, again, it's uh, the, maybe I'm thinking too much about these things, you know, but it's it's, it's certainly yeah, one it's for, for clubs to think of. Yeah, I, I think one of the concerns for us is, or maybe just myself, I don't know, but um, when you have a long-term successful goalkeeper, replacing them seems quite a, a hard task because... Man United went through a few shit ones before they landed on Van der Sar after Schmeichel. Um, Liverpool had Reina for years and then they, they pissed around with, with the likes of Carrius and, and Mignolet and stuff for a few years before they ended up with um, Alisson. Uh, Chelsea have spent how much money on Kepper and what have you and that's that doesn't seem to have gone well. Like There's no yeah. guarantees that bringing in a new keeper is going to do well. Like, as I suppose, there's, there's no guarantee in any transfer. But especially in in 
the top level sort of bringing in new keepers doesn't seem to be like a a guarantee for success or what have you. So, so do you think there's more credence in bringing in a, a young lad in his early twenties and and bringing him up to speed rather than just dropping someone in first day of next season and going Hugo Lloris is gone. This is all on you now. I mean, to me, uh, Paolo Gazzaniga was, you know, I think he, he did well when he deputised for Lloris when Lloris was out. It was with his elbow. Yeah, when he did his arm against Spurs. Yeah, I, I, sort of, um, I think it was three seasons ago. I spent a lot of time sort of going to Wembley, watching mm-hmm. Spurs play, and um, and I watched him quite a few times. Um, and, and I thought he did really well, you know. For somebody who, who, who I think he'd been in the club a little while and and I'd played a lot of games and then was sort of thrust into the limelight. I thought he did really well. And I thought it was a bit harsh in him bringing Joe Hart in because I really think that he, he was good enough to be number two and mm-hmm. more than able enough to step in if, if Hugo was was injured um, or suspended. But I, I, So I think that having Gazaniga at the club, I think as long as he stays at the club, I think it gives them a bit of a cushion, really, because they, they know they can always turn to him and that he's performed well for the club in the past. So, you know, it's it's not the worst second option for them. So it takes a little bit of risk out of it. But like like you said, you know, nothing guarantees that it's, that's, you know, no amount of money guarantees that it's, it's going to be a success for a goalkeeper. But of course... That all comes down to recruitment and was Kepper a, a fantastic goalkeeper before he came to Chelsea? Probably not. You know? And uh, What what leads um a club to spend that amount of money on on, on him then if he wasn't? Well, I mean the, the the biggest thing was the, the release clause, wasn't it? They could have six months earlier they could have had him for twenty million <laughs> before his uh, before his release clause uh kicked in. That might have been a fairer reflection of his ability. Yeah, exactly, and it makes it you know twenty million to, to a top six club is a drop in the ocean. It's it's it, there's no risk attached really. Um, so you know that that's why that fee became so inflated as as it was. They were just they, they left themselves in a desperate situation once Courtois left. Mm-hmm. But I think that's um, a club like Spurs now with the the recruitment. Um, people that they have at, at their disposal you would think that they'd have a long list of uh, of possible targets and and then obviously uh, allied with the uh, with the manager then they'd come to a, an agreement about who they'd want but I mean it's not it's not like um, Mourinho has a bad bad record with goalkeepers you know all the way from Porto obviously he had experience there and all you know, a very experienced goalkeeper there, but he's always had good goalkeepers there wherever he's had, uh, wherever he's been, and you know, I'm sure he knows exactly the type of goalkeeper that he wants. Do you think if he's still there, of course. <laughs> yeah, if he's still there, unless this is all coming from Hugo himself, and he he fancies going to Paris to play with Poch, or one of the latest links has been going back home to Nice and and playing at the rest of his years at home, which you know. It might be something that he wants to do for family reasons or what have you. Do you think it's um, uh, perhaps a bit frivolous for Spurs to be um, tempting fate a little bit by by playing with the idea of replacing somebody who's been so good for them for so long and 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 you know with those stats you gave us, clearly still is performing. 
do you reckon it, they might be playing with fire a little bit and and might get bit in the ass for <laughs> for trying to get rid of someone who, who probably doesn't deserve to be uh, sacked off as quickly? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably going to be a, some kind of mutual agreements. I mean, I'd imagine if if Hugo wanted to stay, I think you know the the club would find a way of keeping him at the moment. I mean, thirty four years old, you know, he's probably got at least at least two or three more seasons at the very highest level before sort of, um, you know, mentally and physically that he'd be up to that still. But um, do you reckon there's there's any chance? Sorry, jumping in. Um, but because a lot of his game, as you said, he, he plays a bit deeper towards his line, but a lot of his game was based on his his pace of moving across it and coming out. As he's getting deeper into his th- is that pace moving away from him a little bit more and his legs naturally slowing. Um, that could be influencing it, the occasional mistake he does make is, is just because he, he simply might not be as, le- as athletic as he was five to ten years ago. Yeah, there, there could be that. But, I mean, uh, off the top of my head, I don't think he's... He's had too many long-term injuries, sort of, especially sort of uh, lower body injuries, Be- because of because of the, um, the 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 level of sports science that are at Premier League clubs now. I think you tend to see, in general, a lot less of a drop off when it comes to you know uh, the sort of physical attributes to of any player, a man, a goalkeeper. You know, players look after themselves a lot more. There's uh, a lot more preparation and um, sort of post-match recovery. That's that means that you know days are gone when a player reaches thirty or thirty-three, and you see a, 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 they go off like a cliff edge physically. And a lot of that's down to sort of attitude as well. Because I remember when I first started playing, anybody over we got to thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, they kind of Clubs would wrap them up in cotton wool and say, "Oh, you don't have to train today. You don't have to train this. You've done enough this week, and you should only do this certain amount." Those days are gone. Players are still in the gym in the thirties, even more so. I mean, look, look at people like Cristiano and and Sergio Ramos. I mean, they're the extreme, but this is sort of in general in football. This is what players are doing they're to get to stay at a level and to keep in the in the game as long as possible. So I don't think that's that's much of a um, that's much of a worry that's going to be like a like a huge drop off from his performances, uh, and, and certainly physically. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Okay, I'll make this my my last question because I don't want to keep you too long. Um, but we had a that situation last year during the lockdown where um, Son didn't track his man, and we had a shot that came towards the uh, the goal, and, and Hugo did save it, but we we could have conceded where we we really didn't need to. And uh, on the pitch, he lost his head and um, went looking for him. And and in that documentary, he obviously had words with him in the dressing room as well. So clearly, he's a he's a leader. He's he's got some spirit about him, and that's something that I think people know about him behind closed doors. But because he's quite a a well to do Frenchman, he's got that accent. He's quite posh in, in the way he is um, from how he's been brought up and stuff. He, he doesn't come across that way in interviews and everything. So people perhaps don't give him the um the Jewies he deserves in that regard. Is that something that's that's hard to replace and, and isn't often seen in goalkeepers or is that a, a trait that other top level goalkeepers will share as well? Yeah, I, I think that's a lot of goalkeepers what you see these days are very measured on the field and 
um, you know, I'll go back to the, if you look at the comparison between like say Schmeichel and Edwin van der Sar, the way they were in the pitch, you know, they were both totally different characters, but no, you know, there was no difference in the authority that they had. And I think that's, I love the way the goalkeepers are now that's, you know, all the top goalkeepers were mentioned, you know, the two Brazilians, De Gea, um, Testegen in Spain, Noya. They still have a sort of a level of intensity, but they're very calm. And and for me, that's brilliant because sometimes, you know, people used to see Peter Schmeichel and, and I did it myself, you know, you, you, you're berating your defenders and you're shouting. And that's great if it, if, if it sort of keeps you in the game and helps you. But for a lot of people, they don't have the same mentality as Peter Schmeichel. So when you're losing it on the pitch, you do actually lose it. Your concentration, your focus for a little bit, and what that leads to is bad decisions. So, you know, for me, something like Hugo Lloris on the pitch for seeing him really measured, it it was you know, it's part of what makes him a great goalkeeper to help him to make great decisions. But also on the flip side, of that like you said, it was great for, even for, for me to watch that documentary, and see that, you know, that he wasn't, you know, if something needed to be said, he was going to say it. You know, and that's mm-hmm. and that's something that that happens in dressing rooms and needs to be said in dressing rooms because anyone can make a mistake. You know, goalkeepers make mistakes, defenders make mistakes. If it's technical error, I can accept that all day, and I think most people will. When it's you know a, a, a mistake or something like that, where it's a choice that somebody doesn't do something, attitude or effort. Yeah, exactly. And then he's totally right, and especially as captain. You know, I think a lot of people in that dressing room, you know, if he didn't do that, then they'll be asking questions why he did he he wasn't doing that, and it's yeah. and it's not to dig people out or to you know to make people embarrass people. It's just to make sure that they don't do it again. So, you know, it helps the team next time. You know, well, in a team environment, you hold people to account, don't you? And and that's it's not always pretty, but it's a way of. Showing you care and making sure everyone's got their head screwed on right, and it, it's not something that sets in because it's it's one of those if he, if he don't say it, then Son's probably less inclined to trap back the next time, and and that becomes a long term issue. Whereas first time he's seen him do it, he's he's had a word, perhaps a, a much harsher word than he might have needed to publicly, um, but it's been said, and and the lad works his socks off, and 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 rarely um, doesn't trap back now. I think it's pro- that was probably. More of it, the fact that Son works so hard that you know that he's the one person you would think who 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 wouldn't be doing that, you know. Yeah. But it's just, it's just good to keep on top of people. But I mean, just going back to Larissa's, um, he saw his character and everything, you know. You know, seeing all the things sort of like um, post World Cup, you know, when he he was uh, he's convicted of drink driving and things like that, and. We, you don't know what goes on behind the scenes with people and, and what affects mm-hmm. them. And for me, when you know a lot of the dis- a lot of mistakes that goalkeepers make, um, you know, when people like David de Gea going through um, going through bad times, and you know where, where and like I said, all goalkeepers make errors, but it's when sort of things become a bit of a theme, or you know they go through a period where they make lots of mistakes. It always makes you wonder what's going on behind the scenes, and. You know, we can talk about technique and everything as much as one, but goalkeepers about decision making, and mm-hmm. and a lot of the time, you know, if something's disrupting that 
decision-making process, then a lot of times it can be stuff that's off the field or, the, you know, whether it's the bad preparation, whether things aren't right at home and things like that. And so it's, you know, there's a lot more to it than just, again, like like we talked about before about goalkeeping, you know, there's a lot more to it than just somebody making a mistake. When people make decisions on the pitch and all their performances, there's a lot more to it than just, you know, that 90 minutes. You know, there's a lot going on. These people are human as well and... Um, you know, we've, we we should t- we should always take that into account. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, I think that's everything, mate. Thank you very much for your time. I think that was um, really interesting and illuminating for me to sort of think about it on a more, more technical level than I probably would have done otherwise. Because usually you you just have that, like I say, baseline conversation around your keepers. Um, so thank you very much. And 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 maybe if Hugo goes or stays or Nick Pope comes in or whatever happens, we can catch up in a season or so's term and, and see where we're at with that. Yeah, I'd love to, mate. Thanks for having me on. Right, um, just me wrapping things up now, as promised at the start. Uh, thank you very much to Carl Anker and David Priest, our two guests. Uh, follow them on Twitter, just search your names, buy Carl's book with Marcus Rashford for yourself or for your kids. Um, follow David um for goalkeeping insights and everything and uh, normal service should be resumed with the uh, jack taking the reins and, and me chipping in uh sooner rather than later but i hope you enjoyed this little um bane sideshow whatever you want to call it and uh jack does this plenary bit at the end but you can um follow us on twitter as well rtr pod uh search for us on itunes or spotify or wherever else leave us an itunes review that apparently helps um acast we're on that as well uh, instagram we're on that we try to do some um post game stuff might do a post game instagram live on sunday we'll see thought i'd get my hair cut until monday so maybe i'll, I'll hold off because I'm, I'm vain like that but we'll uh We'll uh, wait with bated breath, I'm, bated breath, I'm sure. Uh, but thank you very much for listening. Uh, I have been Raj Burns, and uh, I'll speak to you soon next time. Hopefully we'll get a result on Sunday. Uh, come on, you Spurs. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.